Go ahead and have a seat. Welcome back, everybody. My name is Norton. Uh, I'm one of the pastors, um, in case I haven't met you. Um, And uh, in case you were not here last week, um, and welcome to all of those of you. I know a lot of folks are at home uh, watching online. Um, In case you didn't see uh, last week's message, we kicked off a brand new series uh, called Remember Who You Are. Remember Who You Are. And it's about revisiting some of the most important truths um, about who we are, truths that we often tend to forget, or maybe, in some cases, truths that we never really understood or never embraced uh, to start with. And today we're going to read some really important words that the Apostle Paul wrote. Um, and they're really important whether you um, are new to a journey of faith, uh, especially if you're new to a journey of faith, you're trying to figure out what you believe about Jesus um, or the Bible, or God, or church, or religion, or all those kind of things. If you're trying to put all that together, um, today the words we read I think will be really helpful and really important, but they're also really important if you've been walking with Jesus or you've been a Christian for many, many years. Um, and the reason is because over time, I think this is true of most of us, over time our relationship with God becomes often wrapped up in our accomplishments or in our failures. That if you think about our days, um, our days and our moments and our lives are filled with accomplishments and they're filled with failures, and uh, little and big, and oftentimes those are the things that shape more than anything else how we relate to God. So think about it. Um, when you have one of those good days, uh, and you, maybe you wake up early, maybe you even open your Bible, you read it for a few minutes, maybe you say a, a, a prayer, um, and that feels like an accomplishment, and you're proud of yourself, and you know God is proud of you, and everything just feels really good, Right? Um, Or there are those days um, where you're tempted by something and you're strong and you don't give in to the temptation. You just drive right past the ice cream shop and you just keep going and you don't stop. That's my temptation. And you feel good about yourself and you know God's like, yes, you did it. And and you feel like everything's going well. Um, Or there's those days when you just wake up and you have a good attitude or you're nice to somebody else or you go out of your way to pay a compliment to someone Um, Or you don't say something snarky to someone, even though they said something snarky back to you, and you could have said something back to them, but you chose not to, right? And and you just feel really good, and it's in those days where you feel like even your relationship with God is good. But then on the flip side, (laughs) there are those days or those moments when we fail, uh, when we stumble, when our attitude is not so great, when we don't make the right choice, when we give in to the temptation, when we lose our temper again, when we're impatient again, when we say something or when we do something that we know deep down inside, that's really not what somebody who's a good Christian you know, should say or do. And when we fail, we have this sense that God is upstairs somewhere shaking his head at us, right? He's disappointed in us. He's frustrated with us again. And the truth is, uh, in reality, we're frustrated with ourselves. We're disappointed in ourselves. Like, why do I keep doing this? Why can't I just change my attitude? And, and I feel a sense of shame, or I feel a sense of embarrassment, right? And sometimes I just want to hide from God in those moments. Um, sometimes I feel like God is frustrated with me, and He needs time to cool off from me, right? We just need to kind of have our space And uh, sometimes I feel like I need to work my way back into good favor with him. Like I need to do a bunch of good things, you know, to outweigh the thing I just did, right? Because there's just this distance in between me and God. And that's because over time, right, our relationship with God often becomes wrapped up in our accomplishments and in our failures. And part of the reason it's like that is because that's how we related to our parents, 
growing up, or that's how we related to authority figures. Part of the reason it's like that is that has, that's how we still relate to other people. But when you stop and think about it, if we relate to God in that way, that is exhausting, right? That, that, can, that can drain and suck the life out of you because sometimes it feels like our accomplishments are never enough, like we can never do enough good things to really impress God, right? And, and our failures oftentimes outweigh our accomplishments, and they just produce more shame and more embarrassment and the sense that God is like the disappointed father who's really just in love with our potential, <laughs> but he's not in love with us, right? Uh, because our lives are filled with more failure than they are accomplishment. And, and it's in light of all of this that the Apostle Paul realized that we have this tendency even if you've been a Christian for a long time, especially maybe if you've been a Christian for a long time, that we have this tendency. And the problem is we've forgotten something that's core to who we are. And so he wrote a letter to some friends, some friends of his who were living in the city of Corinth. And it's the second letter that we have from him. And so we call it 2 Corinthians. Um, And when he wrote this letter to these friends, these friends were Christians. They had been followers of Jesus for quite some time. And I want to look at what he said to them today. Here's what he wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, and the new is here. So if anyone is in Christ, that's Paul's terminology for what it means to be a Christian. So if somebody has become a Christian, if somebody is a Christian That's what he means when he says somebody who is in Christ. Now, when we think about someone becoming a Christian, we usually think about two things changing in their life, belief and behavior. They they believe something different. Before they were a Christian, they maybe didn't believe in Jesus, and now they believe in Jesus. And their behavior is different. Before they were a Christian, they did all sorts of bad things, and now they do all the good things and all the right things. Um, Belief and behavior. But those two things are about what you do or about what I do. And that's not what Paul is talking about here. Paul is not concerned with something that you do. Paul is talking about something that actually happens inside of you that you had nothing to do with. He says, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. And in Greek, when he wrote this, because he was writing in Greek originally, we're just reading translations into English. He wrote, if anyone is in Christ new creation. There's no words in between those two phrases. There's no subject. There's no verb. It's just, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. And by that, he probably meant, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Or if anyone is in Christ, they are now part of the new creation. And what he means by this is something that Paul talks about in some of his other writings that when Jesus rose from the grave, so he's going back several years, when Jesus rose from the grave on Easter morning, God began and launched a new creation project. And that new creation started with Jesus rising from the grave and life triumphing over death. And in that moment in the world, the power of sin and death was broken and God's new creation began to spread in the world. And what Paul is saying here is, if anyone is in Christ, it's like they rose with Jesus from the grave, and now they are a part of that new creation. In fact, the old world, 
The, the old way, the old system is now gone. They're part of the new system, the new way, the new creation in this world. And that's a fundamental change that happens inside of you and it happens inside of me. Anytime someone becomes a Christian, the old is gone and the new is here. And that gets to a fundamental part of our identity that we need to be reminded of today. And it's simply this, that you are new. You are new. Three little words that I want you to think deeply about and reflect on this entire week that you, if you are in Christ, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are new. And we might say, well, that's awesome. That's cool. Like, that's nice. Like, if I'm a Christian, I'm a new person. And Paul would say, no, no, no. I, I think you're I don't think you're fully grasping it. I don't think you're fully getting it because here's the problem. You're actually still relating to God in the old way. You're relating to God in light of your accomplishments and in light of your failures. And that's part of the old system and that's part of the old way. You've forgotten or you actually never fully understood what it means to be fully new. And so in the next few verses, he's going to unpack what happened when God made you new. And I want to read through that, and we're going to read through it slowly. And it's really deep, and it's theologically profound, and it's chock full of meaning. And so we're just going to walk our way through it really slowly. And I'm going to unpack for you some of the biggest concepts that Paul would ever write about in just a few verses. Look at what he says next. He says, all of this is from, and what's the next word there? God, right? All of this new creation that, that burst forth in the world, it's from God, right? All this process of making you into a new creation, that's from who? Right. So who's doing all of this work? And what are you doing? Nothing, right? You're not doing anything. You're not a part of this. You, you don't have a role here. Now, there's other places that Paul talks about when you became a Christian, like we said before, that you maybe started believing some things differently. And then at one point he says, and if you confess certain things, then, then that's important. But what Paul is talking about in this passage, when it comes to you becoming a new creation, it has nothing to do with anything that you're doing. It's all about what God is doing. Now, let's look at the next phrase. He says, all of this is from God who reconciled. And this word reconciled is a big word. Um, it means what most of us understand it to mean, right? The word that Paul uses originally in Greek was used in all sorts of other ancient classical writings to refer oftentimes to a relationship between two people that had been broken by something. So sometimes it describes two friends and something has come in between those two friends and now they're not friends anymore, or they are estranged from one another, or they had an argument, or they had a disagreement, and they're not on the same page anymore, or one person hurt the other person, and now there's a wall in between them. They're separated. Or sometimes it describes uh, a, two spouses, a husband and a wife, and somehow they've either drifted apart or something came in between them. But then when they are brought back together, when they are restored, when the relationship is made right again, when that thing that was in between the two people that was breaking them apart is removed, this word describes what has happened. They have been 
reconciled. So Paul says, all this is from God who reconciled, and then what's the next word? Us. To who? To himself, right? You guys can read. That's awesome. Uh, He reconciled us to himself. So what Paul is saying is, there was something in between our relationship with God. There's something in between you and him. There was a wall. There was a barrier. There was some sort of distance. There was a gap. There was a, a separation that needed to be overcome in order to reconcile us back to God. And so this fundamental change that God made in you, that you had nothing to do with, is what reconciled you back to him, which is really, really important. Because essentially what Paul is saying is God knew that he had to do something inside of you. What God knew is that what would reconcile you back to him would not be you just trying harder. It would not be just giving you more time. It would not be just saying to you, hey, I need more accomplishment and less failure. I need you to be better and stop doing all of the bad things. God knew that that would never actually work. That wouldn't actually reconcile us permanently back to Him. Because if our reconciliation with Him was based on our behavior, on whether we're doing the good things and not doing the bad things, then there would be moments that were reconciled to Him, and there would be moments that were not reconciled to Him. And we'd be going back and forth and back and forth. But God knew that something had to permanently change inside of you in order to permanently reconcile you back to Him. So that change has to happen from God, and it's not a change that you can make for yourself. So he goes on to say, this comes from God who reconciled us to himself. And then let's put up the next part. Through Christ. So Jesus is at the heart of all this. We're going to get to that in a second. And he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What in the world does that mean, Paul? Well, it's this, that God was reconciling the world to himself, in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. God was reconciling, now it's clear, not just you, not just me, not just the people that Paul was writing to. God was reconciling the entire world to himself. Everyone needed reconciling with God. And he's doing it in Christ, and he's doing it by not counting people's sins against them. Now I want to unpack two words here in this phrase, not counting people's sins against them. The word count and the word sin. Um, Count is a financial term. Anybody here work in finances? Anything like that? Nope. Okay, great. That's part of the problem in the world today is that nobody's working in finances or accounting anymore. Okay, Um, so the word for counting here means to count something or to calculate something or to add something up, or to factor something into the equation. So what Paul says is, our sin, and the word for sin there means something that separates us from God, our sins, the things that we do, and we all have these sins. We all have a, sometimes Paul calls it a actual sinful nature, not just sins, but a sinful nature, or a disposition to sin. And, uh, and we don't need to quibble with that, right? Because we all know that. I mean, we all stumble. We all fail. 
We're all selfish from time to time. We're all impatient. We're all ungrateful. We say things. We hurt people in ways that we don't intend to, but we still hurt them. Like we all do those sorts of things. And so the word sin can sometimes sound churchy or religious, right? And it can somehow be off-putting, but we would all agree with Paul. Like, yeah, we all fail. We all fall short. We all have sin. And Paul says it's that sin that created the alienation from God. It's that sin that separated us from God. And that's not the way God made us. He didn't make us to be people like that. He made us to be linked to Him, to be in relationship with Him, to live in accordance to the way He made us, to live with all the visions and dreams that He had for us. But when we decided not to live that way, and when we decide to do things that are different from how He wants us to live, that's what separates us from Him. And Paul says, this is huge. God decided not to count any of that sin against us anymore. He decided not to factor those sins into our relationship any longer. He decided not to apply your sin to your account. He took the ledger or the spreadsheet that had all your failures and all your accomplishments, and he just threw the whole thing out. And he said, I'm not going to take any of those failures, any of those sins, any of those things. They're not going to count against you anymore. Because God didn't want to relate to you like an accountant any longer. And he knew the only way that you might be reconciled to him and only way that you might have a relationship with him once again was that if he fundamentally changed you so that those sins wouldn't be counted against you anymore. And so you've been reconciled. They don't count anymore. Which means that when you screw up, when you do something that you wish you hadn't have done, God's not mad at you. He's not frustrated with you. He's not disappointed in you. He doesn't want to go cool off, right? He doesn't need to go count to 10 like I need to count to when somebody offends me, right? Your sin doesn't count against you anymore. And if you don't believe that, just read the verse again. Not counting people's sins against them. And you might say, but when I screw up, when I do something kind of horrible or I think something horrible, it doesn't feel that way, right? How can God not be disappointed in me? How can He not be angry? How can He not be frustrated with me? I mean, when I think about the things that I say and I do sometimes, how can He not be angry? How can it just not count? Paul would say that's the old way. That's the old system. You're still operating under the old system where it's your accomplishments and your failures that count the most with God. That that's what God is primarily concerned with. That that's what he's tracking. That's not what he's tracking. He's not keeping score. The heart of the problem, I think, with all of us is simply this. Let me give you two statements. I want to put these on the screen. You might write these down. We overestimate the significance of our accomplishments and our failures. And we underestimate the significance of the cross and the empty tomb. You see, maybe um, you're here, uh, maybe you're watching and you've been a Christian for a long time, right? 
You've been attending church most of your life, and you go to church, and we come to church, and we pray, and we sing songs all the time about God's grace. And then we go out and we live with the illusion that somehow my accomplishments make me better in his eyes. My accomplishments raise my standing in his eyes. That If I can just be good enough and I can just be consistent enough and I can just be righteous enough and, and if I can ever get my act together, then my standing in God's eyes will go up. That, that he'll be proud of me. That, that I'll be more intimate and closer to him. That, that I'm somehow more lovable or I'm more favorable or I'm more acceptable in his eyes when I'm doing the things that I'm supposed to be doing. And then on the flip side... We often think that our failures, our stumbles, our our sin, it, it somehow downgrades our relationship with God. It separates us from Him. It makes us less acceptable. It makes us less lovable. It makes us less favorable. He's upset and He needs time to cool off, right? I need to work my way back into His favor. I need to do a whole bunch of good stuff to outweigh all of the bad stuff. And the problem is we overestimate the significance of our accomplishments and our failures. And we underestimate what God did on the cross and through the empty tomb. And what Paul, I think, is trying to teach us is when we relate to him in light of our accomplishments and our failures, that's the old way. That's living in our old identity. That's living in our old self. But through the cross and through the empty tomb, God has made us new. He's reconciled us permanently to himself. And there's nothing, for those of us who are in Christ, there's nothing we can do to become unreconciled. There's nothing we can do to be separated. There's nothing that can come between us and God any longer. So that he can look at you and he can look at me. And even in the midst of our failure, he can look at us and he can say, you know what? It doesn't matter to me. From my perspective, we're still good. From my perspective, that failure has been dealt with. Now, that doesn't mean that our sins or our failures don't matter at all. And it doesn't mean there aren't consequences to our choices. We can make choices that harden our hearts We can make choices that destroy our lives. We can make choices that hurt other people. We can make all kinds of choices that have consequences in our world, in our lives, and in the lives of the people that we love. But it's almost as if God looks at us and says, but here's what you need to know. Even in the midst of that, from my standpoint, when it comes to your relationship with me, I'm not keeping track. I'm not counting. I'm not keeping score. And I know you feel guilty about it, and I know you feel less lovable right now, and I know you feel ashamed, but from my vantage point, you couldn't be more lovable than you are right now, because you've been reconciled to me. And that's not just a truth to internalize and believe. It's something to actually live out, because look at what Paul says next. He says, and he, that's God, has committed to us Literally, that's put within us the message of reconciliation. And we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We're Christ's messengers in the world. And here's the appeal that God is making through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. 
That when we are in Christ, we're like a walking billboard to people of what it's like to be new and reconciled to God. And just in case we still don't understand how God does all this and what's at the heart of all of this, look at how Paul wraps it all up. He drives it home by saying, God made him who had no sin. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. See, this is how God reconciled us to him. This is how he stopped counting our sins against us. God the Father placed on his son Jesus, the only one who actually had no sin, the only one who had all accomplishments, no failures, the the only one who was completely consistent, completely faithful to the very end. God placed on him all of the burden of our sin and our shame and our guilt and the consequences of our failure, that he took all of it and the separation and and, and the alienation that it created with God, he took all of that. Do you remember when Jesus is dying on the cross? The gospel writers record that he cries out in the midst of all of that, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? Jesus is experiencing in that moment all of the alienation and the abandonment and the separation from God that comes from our sin. And why does he do all this? Paul tells us next. So that we might become the righteousness of God. This word righteousness It means a few things. It means a right standing with God. It means a right relationship with God. It means to be faithful and as consistent and as righteous towards God as He is faithful and consistent and righteous towards us. And you might say, well, hold on a second. I'm not that. (laughs) That's not true. You were not that. You were not consistent. You were not faithful. You were not righteousness. You were separated and alienated from God by your sin. And there was nothing you could do about it. So God did something for you. He made you new. And he made you alive in Jesus. And he united you with Jesus. And your sins died with Jesus on the cross And you were raised from the grave with Jesus on Easter morning so that now Jesus' righteousness and Jesus' faithfulness are actually yours. You're fully reconciled to God because when He looks at you now, He sees you in Jesus. And that's why your good deeds and your accomplishments, they don't earn any favor from God because you already have favor from God. When he looks at you, he sees the favor of Jesus in you. And that's why your bad deeds and your failures and your sins, they don't make God angry. They don't make him disappointed in you. They don't make him upset. They don't change the relationship at all because he's already dealt with it. He says, look, that's dealt with. Those are gone. I have cast those in the words we read earlier. As far as the east is from the west, I've removed those things from you. You're now reconciled. You are the righteousness of God. 
And here's what I want us to take away from this passage. More than anything else, here's what you have to understand and what I have to understand. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are not a sinner. You are new creation. You are fundamentally not a sinner. And I feel like we throw that word around a lot. And, and I understand sometimes we, we'll, we'll say, well, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. And the intention there is good, right? Um, but the truth is, when you became a Christian, your identity changed. The word sinner is a core identity, and that is not your core identity anymore. In fact, if you read the entire New Testament, the New Testament writers almost never refer to somebody who is a follower of Jesus as a sinner. Do you want to know the words that they do use about you and about me? Here's the words that the New Testament uses to describe you. You are a saint. You're a holy one. You've been reborn. You've been renewed. You're redeemed. You're reconciled. You are new creation. You are the righteousness of God. And yet, in light of all of that, we still often see ourselves as sinners. And we refer to ourselves as sinners, even in our prayers, in the songs we sometimes sing, in the language we use, in the things that we believe about ourselves. Oftentimes, it's just driven by this deep sense of shame and guilt and unworthiness in front of God. And when we do that, it's like we're constantly reminding ourselves over and over and over that I'm this terrible sinner. When God keeps coming back and trying to tell us the exact opposite and saying, no, you're not. You're new. You're, you're, you're Jesus' righteousness. You've been reborn. You've been redeemed. You're reconciled. You are new creation. And if we could just remember that and believe that every day, then we'd stop trying to tote all of our good accomplishments up to God and hope that He'd be proud of us. He already is proud of us. And we'd stop trying to hide all of our failures because that doesn't change our standing either. And we begin to see ourselves the way God sees us, as new creation. And so here's how I want to wrap up today, and hopefully it'll lead us into a week of believing and living into this truth. We're going to conclude by taking communion together, and um, we're going to do it a little differently than we've normally done it. Uh, if you've been a part of our community for a long time, we usually have tables up here with cups and bread and all those sort of things. And, and we do, we have two tables up here today, um, but on those tables, we have little hermeneutically sealed, individually wrapped cups of communion, which is not going to feel as sacred as it normally does, but it's going to be way safer um, than it normally is. Um, and it doesn't matter how something feels, because here's what communion is all about, and here's what it means, and here's what it proclaims. It proclaims that we have joined in Jesus' death and His resurrection, and what it means for us and for our lives and for our world. And so here's how we're going to do it today. Um, we're going to sing a song in just a second. Brian's going to lead us through a song. And during that song, um, I want to invite you, we'll stand and sing together. And I want you to think about the words we're singing. And just any time during that song, you can just come forward um, and grab one of these little individually wrapped um, cups and go ahead and take it back to your seat. Don't take communion right there. Just take it back to your seat. And then we'll come back together after the song 
and we'll open them up and we'll take communion together. If you're watching at home, this gives you an opportunity as well to take just a moment while we're singing and you can go get some elements. Um, Just go grab some juice or wine and some bread. Um, And if you don't have juice or wine, you can just get some water. That's not really that important, but just grab something um, so you can participate with us as well. Let's sing this song together.